you would have an unforgettable meal if you went to the restaurant and saw two high chairs. And in one of the high chairs, you saw a toddler trying to polish off a steak. And in the other high chair, you saw a fully grown adult mowing down a bowl of pablum. We all know that given enough time and given the gift of teeth, babies grow and they graduate to eat steak. And in the same way, new and newly born Christians are supposed to move on from scriptural pablum to scriptural meat. Today, we launch a new verse-by-verse preaching time in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And we're going to see in the book that our superior Savior makes pressing on to maturity wise. Of course, very ordinary persons read the first time the book of Hebrews. They were ordinary people like us. And the first readers of Hebrews were largely a Jewish people who came to see that Jesus Christ is Messiah, and they believed in him much as we have believed in him for salvation. But embarrassingly, it came to be that some of these Jewish converts to Christ were fine with remaining in the high chair and eating the pablum and not pressing on to the meat. What you probably know, I hope, that the 27 books of the New Testament were not all published by the Holy Spirit at the same time. So logically, there had to be a first book, and logically, there had to be a last book. The first book that God the Holy Spirit gave was the book of James. And then 18 years later, after James, the Holy Spirit gave the book of Hebrews. And a lot happened between uh, James and Hebrews. Those 18 years saw a lot of things happen. Some of those things were dandy, and most of those things were difficult. The believers in Jesus who had a Jewish heritage had anything but a bed of roses in their Christian lives. They had a lot of hardships, persecutions. And those hardships tempted some of them, at least, to turn back to Judaism. Maybe their thought processes were like their forefathers, who God miracled out of Egyptian slavery. And when things got tough in the wilderness, They basically had the mindset, let's go back to Pyramid Central. (laughs) At least the food was tasty there. You can read about that, of course, in the book of Exodus. Well, anyway, in the 18 years between the giving of the book of James and the giving of the book of Hebrews, some of these Jewish converts wanted to revert from grace to law, from Savior righteousness to self-effort law-keeping. From Christ, they wanted to revert to high chairs. The book of Hebrews warns about such turning back from walking with Jesus. We've sung and 
It's been good that we have. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. If we're honest with ourselves, I think that we have to admit there are times when we too are tempted to turn back from following Jesus. Often when life doesn't turn out to be quite the way we thought it would turn out, or when we're suffering, or when we notice, frankly, that people who aren't walking with Jesus seem to be doing better than we are. Sometimes we're tempted to turn back from following Jesus when we have difficult losses or when our Christianity begins to cost us. But essentially, the message of the book of Hebrews is that it's wise to press on to maturity in Christ because he's superior. Maybe I could illustrate that truth with another kind of truth, a statement. It's wise to press on to get your college degree because with it, you'll have a superior chance to get a job. And so the book of Hebrews reassures us to press on to maturity in Christ because he is superior. That's the main point of the book of Hebrews. If you stuff something in your purse or your pocket, that's the main point of Hebrews, that we are to press on to maturity in Christ because he is superior. And because Christ is superior, it makes a whole lot of sense to get out of the high chair to move from milk to meat, to hang in there, and to not turn back, to not walk away. Of course, it's possible for a Christian to walk away from Jesus externally or internally, visibly or invisibly. Take the children of Israel and their relationship with the true and living God. They had form without reform. They had compliance without craving for God. They had show without sanctification. And we in this church age can have the same thing happen. We maybe don't walk away from following Jesus in an overt way, but we walk away from following Jesus in a covert way. Like the little girl who was in a service like this and it was time to sing the hymn, and her mother said, stand up and sing with us. And she said, no, I don't want to stand up. And the mother said, stand up and sing the hymn with us. No, I want to sit. And so her mother got her by the ear, which is a good place to get a child like that, stood her to her feet, and the child began to sing the hymn standing. And at one point after the verse 2, the little girl says, I'm standing, but I'm sitting down on the inside. We can be like that little child. The book of Hebrews graciously gives us five reasons why Jesus Christ is superior. Number one, Christ is better than the Jewish law. He fulfilled it. Number two, Christ is better than the angels. They worship him. Number three, Christ is better than Moses. 
because he created Moses. Number four, Christ is better than the Old Testament priesthood because his sacrifice was once for all time. And number five, Christ is better than the Old Covenant because he started a better and a new covenant. Later in the book of Hebrews, near the end, a metaphor of a foot race is used. And in a sense, to borrow the language of the sport of track and field, in the marathon race called the Christian life, you will have plenty of regret if you give up on Jesus. The race may be hard. You may think that you're losing. Quitting would be a whole lot easier. Still, don't quit. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. That should be marked as a favorite on the playlist of your mind. It was Winston Churchill who said, never, never, never quit. Christ is superior to anything and to anyone you are sizing up as you strain to run your marathon race. And sticking with the marathon picture, there are prices to pay to be a good runner. Proper diet, proper sleep, endurance training, maybe at a higher elevation than when the race is going to be run so you get to run with thinner air. Strategies for winning. How to jockey for position in the pack of runners so that you can win. And the book of Hebrews tells us the prices to be paid if we will not drop out of the marathon race called the Christian life. If we will get out of the high chair and if we will eat steak in God's word, there are prices that we're going to have to pay to do those things. And the book of Hebrews tells us that one of the prices is a tested faith and a self-discipline and good works which arise out of a love for God and a love for other people. Another way of saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is better than the Jewish law and better than the angels and better than Moses and better than the Old Testament priests and better than the former covenants is to say that Christ's person is superior to these things. Christ's work is superior to these things. And Christ's followers are superior to these things. Still another way to say it is that the book of Hebrews presents the majesty of Christ, the ministry of Christ, and the ministers of Christ. When we think about the majesty of Christ, that's up to him apart from us. When we think about the ministry of Christ on earth, that's up to him apart from us. When we think about the ministers of Christ, that's up to him by the Spirit of God being in us as race runners. Now, because 
This is the first of many sermons in the will of God for the book of Hebrews with you. I want to do a very quick overview of the book by talking about two key passages. The first is in Hebrews 4. If you have your Bibles, please turn there, Hebrews 4. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. The first point on your outlines, if you received a bulletin, is that we should press on to maturity in Christ and not turn back because we have a great high priest. In fact, the verses help us to know more about our great high priest. We have a great high priest who in the first place has gone through the heavens. God, the Son, became flesh the first Christmas. And God, the Son, returned back to heaven after his resurrection. The Greek tense of the verb here is the perfect tense. And this particular perfect tense describes action which is completed in the past and continues to have result through the present and on into the future. Let me illustrate that in August of 1983, Beth and I were married in a very hot Michigan church. So our marriage was complete back in August of 1983, but all in these ensuing 35 years of married life, the, the effects or the results of a completed act in the past time continue on through today. Our great high priest has passed through the heavens twice. The first was the Christmas incarnation, and the second passing through the heavens of Jesus was returning to his Father's right hand after resurrection. And both of those completed in past time events have continuing result up to today. And so we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. And he is now still in place at his father's right hand. He's still doing the job his father has ordained for him to do at the present time, which is to advocate for you if you're a believer, which is to intercede for you in prayer if you are a believer. And so we have a superior, great high priest who has gone through the heavens. We can be glad for that. Secondly, we have in Christ a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. After all, he has become human. He has lived on earth. He has tasted our emotions. He has felt our needs, and he has faced our temptations. The Greek word, which is translated sympathize, 
means to be touched with the feeling of. To be touched with the feeling of. Our great high priest is touched in his feelings, in his emotions with the things that touch each of us. When a young Bahamian male is gunned down, which happens all too often in Nassau, Jesus is touched by the feelings of his mother. Jesus is touched by the feelings of his father. Jesus is touched by the feelings of his siblings. Jesus is touched by the feelings of the lad's friends. Jesus is touched. Jesus is touched by your pain. Jesus is touched by your loneliness. Jesus is touched by your worry. Jesus is touched by your exhaustion. Jesus is touched by your confusion. Jesus is touched by your discouragement. Jesus is touched by your pessimism. We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. In case we miss it, the text says that our great high priest is not unsympathetic. Jesus is not untouched. Jesus is not unmoved about things that pertain to each of us. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 help us. They say, a father, as a father, has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That's encouraging that God remembers that we are dust. Globs of dust made in his image, but globs of dust. Thirdly, we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus Christ is not some cloistered greenhouse guarded from real-life Savior. Jesus Christ is battle-tested, torture-tested. That's the kind of high priest he is. He's one who has passed the test of resisting temptation. He's the one who took all that Satan could throw at him and who didn't cave or crumble or compromise. That's your high priest. A great high priest is the one who knows all of the ways of escape from temptations because he took all the ways of escape himself. Perhaps three rhyming words can give us impetus, encouragement, a push to pray. The words are there, aware, and share. There, aware, and share. It causes us to pray, or at least it should cause us to pray, because Jesus is our great high priest there in heaven at his post, we pray. And because Jesus, our great high priest, is aware, he knows all about what it means to be human, we pray. And because our great high priest will share his righteousness with us, we ought to pray. And so the first point in overviewing the book of Hebrews 
is that we should press on to maturity in Christ and not turn back because we have a great high priest. The second reason in the book is this. We should press on to maturity in Christ and not turn back because we're in a race. Go with me to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race with endurance. The race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We should press on to maturity in Christ and not turn back because we are in a race. I want us to see four things about the race right in the text. I'm going to give you all four and then just elaborate on each of them briefly. First, according to verse 1, it is one shared race that we're all in. Number two, we can run inspired. Number three, we can run light and long. And number four, we can run copying Jesus. So let's look at these very quickly. In the first place, it's one shared race. Verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. Watch it. The race. Not our race. Not the races. The race. Singular. A particular race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's a certain race we all run. It's a shared race we all run. It's a particular race that we all run. And our race is to our home. Our race is to being glorified, being made to be like Christ, a race to residing in heaven. It's a shared race. In the second place, we can run inspired in the race. 12.1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and the verse goes on. The verse, first part of that verse is saying, we can run inspired. In context, these verses are preceded by a chapter 11 that lists all of the Old Testament saints that are worth copying who didn't turn back from God when they could have because of toughness and difficulty. And so that great cloud of witnesses from chapter 11, thinking about what they endured, how they didn't defect, revert, or give up, can inspire you and me to run the race. Positive examples are powerful. They inspire us. Third, we can run the race light and long. I see that in the second part of verse 1. 
Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We can run light and long. I'm very happy that the Christian life race is not a military uh, training race. In the military, there are soldiers that must carry an overloaded backpack of weight and run a race with that weight. The Christian life is a life where God commands us, take off the weight. Get the backpack off and run the race light and long. Those military trained racers with overloaded backpacks would love to take their backpacks off in a heartbeat, but they're not allowed. We, on the other hand, we are told to get the backpacks of sin off of us. And so the soldiers, their race burdens are ordered on. But we can be grateful that our race burdens are ordered off. That's a good thing. It means that we can run light and long. It mentions that burdens entangle. Most of you know that I'm from Canada, and there's a group of artists that uh, are now passed away, but they painted beautiful uh, paintings of the uh, Canadian landscape, the group of seven. My favorite group of seven artists uh, is Tom Thompson. Tom Thompson died in a canoe, painting a gorgeous autumn scene because his fishing line got tangled around his legs. And when his canoe capsized, he was unable to keep his head above water because his legs were entangled with fishing line. Burdens entangle us too. Burdens also hinder. I have known some people that I love who have migraine headaches. They are debilitating. Sometimes the persons I know with migraines have had to go and lie down in a black room with all the window shades down and try to just get over the excruciating pain. It didn't matter what duties they had at work that day or what things they were doing in their homes. They could not do those things because they had a migraine. Burdens hinder. Burdens also weigh down. I would guess that one of the most common burden that Christians fail to take off their back in running the race is the burden of unforgiveness. Refusing to offer to someone else that has offended you the forgiveness that you yourself have first received from Christ. That's a burden. Unforgiveness is a burden. It prevents you from running the race light and long. There is a fourth Observation about this one shared race that we run as believers. 
And it is that we can run copying Jesus. We can run copying Jesus. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's encouraging to know that we are not the only ones that God has prescribed to run the race. And before we ever started running the race, God the Father dictated that his son would run the race. And because that is so, we can run our shared race by copying Jesus. And the text tells us that we copy Jesus by fixing our eyes on him. How do we do that? He's invisible at the moment. He's in heaven. How do we fix our eyes on Jesus when he is in heaven? By examining how he ministered when he was on earth by seriously studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's how you do it. Now, to be sure, we learn about Jesus in all the other books of the Bible, but we start our biblical inquiry as to what Jesus is like, how he thought, what he did, by looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Looking at those scriptures to do with Jesus' life and ministry, we stare at those Bible verses, and we live in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with a laser beam focus. How will you fix your eyes on Jesus? The same way that I fix my eyes on Jesus, getting in the book in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's how you do it. Those four books ought to become your best friends, your go-to books in Bible study. And so when we understand that we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus in the scriptures as found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then we look away for some other things. We look away from ourselves. We look away from other Christians. They're not our model. We look away from self-help books in the Christian bookstore. We look away from human philosophies. We look away from a worldview that we all live within that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus out of everything. We stare at Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We stare at Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we copy Jesus. For instance, when we come to our Bible reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we ought to ask some questions. Like, how well, how well did Jesus know the Hebrew Bible? How did he use the Hebrew Bible in his ministry? What brought him joy? What broke his heart? How did he know his father's will? What did he teach you about money? These things are all discovered in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did he fight temptation? How did he deal with opposition? How did he handle hypocrites? How did he interact with human politics? How did he define leadership? 
How did he explain his mission on earth? How did he view his family? All found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did he interpret his suffering? How did he interpret our suffering? What got him angry? What refreshed him in friendship? How did he view material possessions? What did he teach about the human condition? What did he have to say about the future? That's what you'll find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you'll study. And you and I will run the race copying Jesus when our eyes are glued on him as he is portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So our overview message on the book of Hebrews comes to a landing on the airstrip. And what have we seen? I think we've seen a top 10 of rapid-fire truth from this sermon about the book of Hebrews. Number one, it's wise to press on to maturity and not to turn back because Jesus is superior. Number two, we have a great high priest. Number three, we're in a race. Number four, study Jesus. Study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Number five, recognize in your prayer life that Jesus is there, and he is aware, and he shares his righteousness. Get out of the high chair. Move from milk to meat. Hang in there. Don't turn back. Don't walk away. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. We pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book of Hebrews and for what we can glean from it as a starting place for the rest of our sermons through the book. Lord, make us to be good runners. Help us, Lord, to run light and long, inspired and copying Jesus. We pray this. For his glory and for his name, in Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.